Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the year of the final the mammoth and horse, the man was the lord of the earth. He made him an hollow skin from the heart of a holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, the man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam, he harnessed the lightning for hire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the lord of the Well, 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 here we are, episode 80. The rock rolls ever on, whatever you want to call it. Another station closer to the destination. Is there a destination? I'm still on season one, if any of you have noticed. I promised myself that season one would only become season two when um, restrictions and rules would maybe disappear and go back to normality well so it's still season one isn't it regardless of what you might think about that or maybe i'm just too lazy to press the little button which makes the digit move from one to two anyway so what am i going to talk about today well dread sovereign just did a tour a small tour of the uk and finishing in ireland and you can probably hear him by my voice i pushed it a bit far um and so Episode 80 is going to be um, a discussion about what it was like to go back to a small tour, the van tour, get in the van, as Mr. Rollins once told us. Just a discussion about, or, well, not a discussion, a monologue, a um, a ramble across. i got to stop using the word ramble. I think it's because I listen to Alan Partridge too much. Um But maybe a look at some of the day-to-day mechanics of going on a small tour. Um, Is it possible to make any money out of it? Um, I'm sure you probably know the answer to that before you listen to the podcast. What is the day-to-day like? Um, Who assumes what role? How does it become organized? What are the different rules and restrictions in different um, venues? And also we went to Scotland, which, as you may have heard me talk about, 
has quite different views on um, the rules and the restrictions and many other things, as I'm going to mention, um, over the course of the podcast, as opposed to um, going just south of the border. We played in Birmingham and the sunny southeast of Bournemouth and all those kind of places finishing in Limerick, which is on the west side of Ireland. So all in all, a quite interesting look at um, the return of touring across the UK and Ireland, the mechanics of it, what were the reactions of people, um, all those kind of things. So before I get into that, the show is sponsored by metalblade.com you can use the promo code AA podcast and you will get 10% off in North America and Eisenwald Records www.eisenton.de in Europe and .com in America and use the same promo code AA podcast and you can get free shipping the links will be below in the description and if you were looking on YouTube specifically, yes, indeed. Great reaction to my interview with Jonas from Catatonia. I realized that the listenership of the podcast um, is kind of split, really. There are those people who um, kind of prefer that I talk about music and sort of stay in my lane. Um, and I don't mean that really in a pejorative sense. I do understand it. The idea that the podcast became my license to talk about politics and society um, is part and parcel of the game. Some of you don't really like that. I get that. Um, and I would hope, as I said before in the podcast, that um, listening to me talk about social or political issues or even the issues of the last 21 months don't alter your relationship to any of the music that I make. Um, I try very hard to make a separation between the characters and personalities of the people that make music and the music that they make, etc. Um, I.e., I don't mind listening to music made by assholes, if that's your opinion of me. Or perhaps not. Or perhaps only a very vocal minority. No. I digress, and it's kind of not true. But anyway, you know what I mean. Um, so, in truth, the podcast over the last month or two has been more about music and has been more about being a musician and its place within the society. I must admit that I became somewhat exhausted. Like many, many people, I sense an incredible um, weariness with the previous 20 months, with the pandemic, with lockdown, with the restrictions coming, going, the complicated um, and let's be honest, mostly um, daft messaging um, that's been coming from state and authority. The invitation to make sense of nonsense, which I constantly say to people when they become confused, saying, well, hang on, I have to put my mask on when I stand up, but when I sit down, I can take it off because obviously the virus um, will leave you alone if you're sitting and other such arbitrarily nonsensical rules. Um, the idea of being constantly every day being asked to take part in some sort of nonsense pantomime that seems to be made up on the fly, is indeed mentally um, and physically exhausting. And um, I'm not immune from that, and it began to exhaust me as well. So therefore, I started to do more interviews with other people from bands, um, talk a bit more about music as bashing my head against the wall, going on about the World Economic Forum or whatever else, just seemed to be something of a hiding for nothing, especially as the world seemed to be opening up. And... 
I realized, well, are you being held captive by certain, you know, being held captive by your audience, so to speak? Should we talk about some various things? Should I step into race and gender and talk about all of those kind of things? Or should we just talk about music? Is there, does it make any sense to do that? These are complicated questions. And through that sort of exhausted prism by which to judge things, I decided to discuss a little bit more about music. Now, there is podcast um, last week, which was looking back over the last 20 months, things that we have learned, things that I have observed, things that I got right and I got wrong. Um, and of course, you know, the reaction to that particular podcast is not as enthusiastic as an interview with Anders from Catatonia. I understand that. That's just the nature of how things go. And like I said, I sense a great weariness. I'm also the Metal Salvage Chats where me and Joe from Gamma Bomb. Um, if you haven't seen them, go over to my YouTube channel and take a look. They're hilarious. They're really funny. They're just We're just having a beer and talking super nerdy stuff about music and about metal. Um, they, it seems like great light relief from some of the weight of the situation. But also, as society slowly tries to regain some sense of normality, tries to regain its footing, get up off its supine position to at least be on its hands and knees, so to speak, maybe slowly getting to its feet, um, still banging the drum for what many people perceive as overly pessimistic and negative views on the situation. Um, I get it. It became tedious and tiresome. And now I'm doing it again and tiring myself with more observations on the same thing. But some of them are important, um, I feel. And there will be a part two about some of the things that I think might stay I'm not going to get into them now, but there'll be a few pokes and um, a few prods in this podcast about some of the curious things that I observed um, during this week of getting back in the van. If never, if you've never read Henry Rollins' um, original book, Get in the Van, I would recommend that because I think that the the whole concept of underground touring and going to basements, small bars, and the small rock bar, the connecting all those dots. Um, it owes an awful lot to that DIY punk scene from the end of the 70s, early the early 80s. Um, whatever it took back then, making flyers, fanzines, getting on the old phone as we originally knew it and pressing the numbers in and dialing up whatever venue and arriving in the city and all those kind of things. They're perfectly documented in, um, I think this, uh, I said it before in the podcast, this sort of Minneapolis hardcore scene documentary that's on YouTube. Um, of course, you know, traveling up and down the UK in a van, I was very much reminded that I happened to be, um, I for some reason happened to have been uh, getting a tattoo and have been watching um, the history of Iron Maiden, which Iron Maiden have put up on YouTube. And you forget how exhaustively he <laughs> um, well, uh, the great attention to detail it has, but it has some great old footage and great old photos of them in there, what they called the Green Goddess, which was their old green van back in 1979, 1980. And all of those bands used to do exhaustive 20, 30-day, 40-day tours up and down the UK. And it still gave me some form of small, odd um, pleasure to go, oh, we're on our way to Bournemouth. Wow, and then thinking back to my old magazines I used to have in the 1980s and seeing that, you know, Manowar were playing at Wolverhampton, Wolfhorn Hall, and I'm not going to tell you it sounded exotic, 
because let's be honest, um, the name Wolverhampton doesn't really sound that exotic, nor does Bournemouth. But even still, um, the quite beautiful drive down through um, the countryside from um, to the sunny southeast of England, um, and that area was quite uh, well. You know, gives you a different complexion, a different view of that country that's sitting next to you. And sure enough, Bournemouth was it exotic? It wasn't quite exotic, but even still, it ticked a few boxes from my um, childhood of looking at all those advertisements of very long tours of the UK, because that's what you had to do, and that's how you went on to sell records. So I'm going to rifle, you know, look back through a bit of, um, is it possible to do the same thing now? The idea that you can build up a regional fan base, etc. Well, so where do we start? Where we start with is the uh, problem that Dread Sovereign was about to go and promote songs that we'd never played. Um, the, the album was written, you know, um, 2018, 2019, came out. We couldn't do anything. We also couldn't rehearse. And we live in, um, guitar player Bones lives in Belgium. So there was no rehearsing. There wasn't, we couldn't do anything. And then I realised like, oh, right, I remember now. We rehearsed these songs more or less instrumental. And then I put the vocals together in the studio. And then the slow dawning and realisation that it's one thing singing when you're lumbering along at a slow pace and you've figured in the vocals around the spaces within the notes. But when you're playing fast um, and much faster than you're used to, and also the singing is quite high and quite hard, ah, you might need to rehearse. So some of you may know or not know the drummer of Dread Sovereign, Johnny, he also plays in Conan. So what could we do but travel to Belgium to rehearse? So instantly when you're talking about, let's say, let's talk about things from a financial concept or aspect. Small van tour with two main cities and a lot of regional cities, which let's be honest, most regional, regional rock shows happen to between 25 and 125 people. And I'll get into that. But so you're starting off with the extra cost of... Um, so you start off already on the sort of, of on uneven financial footing. And one of the things I've also got to kind of um, mention is that for every musical instrument you bring with you on every flight, it's 50 euro. Um, there was talk of um, lobby groups for musicians trying to get this removed because under the Freedom of Movement Act within the EU, I suppose travel once you were inside the EU, um, if it was recognised that you were trying to reach another country to work, um, there was some complicated discussion going on about that the music, you know, um, that instruments were your tools of work and therefore you shouldn't be charged to travel within the EU. Of course, it never got anywhere because the musicians lobby, let's be honest, is never powerful enough really to do anything. They um, as much, well, not as much, but as many times as I've been linked um, with the best of intentions um, links from my friends going, oh, look, there's a new equitable streaming platform. There's a new lobby group, can you know, of old musicians from the 80s. Oh, look, the guy from Portishead is trying to take on Spotify saying my song has been streamed X amount of times. I've never made any money. Nothing ever happens and nothing ever changes. Um, really, to be honest. And this may sound really odd, but um, playing with Dread Sovereign for a week in the back of a van and let's say coming home with 
a complicated, maybe even less than a minimum wage, theoretically, um, is more than a musician like me would get um, for the entire term of lockdown from having 15 plus albums on all streaming platforms. Um, so just to make that more plain, um, a guy came into the venue in Bournemouth and he said, oh, you're having a jumble sale. And I said, well, sort of, sir. We're a traveling T-shirt salesman. The truth being that sell five T-shirts, five, at profit is more than the um, digital profit, most likely, of all of your 10, let's say 10 of your records within that previous three, six, nine, 12 months. And that's constantly a problem because people go, well, what are you talking about? Your contracts mustn't be correct. The artist gets this, that, and the other. And I said, oh, the artist, because that's mainly the discussion in modern terms. And when people talk about articles about Spotify, they're still talking about things in terms of a singular hip-hop artist or electronic artist. A band is three or four or five people. And you have contracts with labels and the money that you get is before tax, etc., etc. So when somebody goes, oh, you should be making 300 euro from um, digital. Well, that is your percentage of 300 euro, which is then divided by five before tax. So the reality is probably it will be 20 to 35 euro. So, yes, indeed, if the profit margin for every shirt is five euro, then you're talking about seven shirts worth in a week to match your earnings from a year or more from um, all digital streaming platforms. And that's just kind of how it is. So you can see there is a cottage industry within touring on a small level that if you can create it, you can actually make um, a potted living, as they say. If you own your van, if you own your backline, if you drive yourself and you are able to, let's say you buy a, um, a cheap and simple screen printing T-shirt device, you can print your own shirts. Um, and if you own those three things and you book the shows yourself and you aren't paying commission to anybody, then, well, you know, you can, if you get and slowly develop a small audience, um, 25, 50 um, 75, 100, 125 people as you keep going round and round all these regional small towns. You can make some kind of poor living from that, as I suppose that's been the historical precedent for rock, music, punk, metal for 40 years. It's just that the parameters of once upon a time, or let's call it the potentiality for a young Iron Maiden for a band now doesn't exist. Um, you aren't going to be the new Iron Maiden. You aren't going to be the new, probably even the new Behemoth or the new Amon Amarth. The chances of you breaking out of that mould that being in the back of the van sets to something greater, um, you will get to a certain ceiling perhaps, but don't do it for one or two or three years for whatever other reasons may come along, such as life, <laughs> who knows, responsibilities, parenthood, rent, going to college, debts, many, many other things. Um, the open road, as it were, that existed in 1980 or 1990 or even 2000 for bands to um, grow um, and sell physical copy um, doesn't really exist anymore. So the situations they find themselves, the circumstances of life that surround them are an awful lot more complicated. Say, for example, you speak to somebody and they go, oh, how come this small American band doesn't want to tour like the bands from 1983? Well, there are many reasons for that. One could be 
going to college in the United States now will saddle you with huge financial student debt. Now, does that mean you can afford to get in the back of a van and tour like Slayer did in 1983 or Metallica? No, it doesn't. On practical terms, all musicians now, all young musicians now know they don't have a career as a musician. They may have a hobby, a busman's holiday of like, I enjoy being in the van, I like going on tour, so I like it. I'm willing to accept the fact that probably working in the bar around the corner would pay me more money, but my life is arranged in such a way that I'm able to do it. But for many people, that isn't true. And if you're saddled with a huge financial debt or you've got to pay rent or you've got to study because you realize that, well, I better have a backup plan or rather just an actual plan and music is just my hobbyist plan. So for anyone who complains, oh, bands don't tour like they want to do, they do. It's just life has changed. Life has made it much more complicated and it's a naive thing to state because it makes no sense. We don't live in 1981 anymore or 1991 or whatever, whatever version of the past you want to choose where life was a little bit more free and easy and certainly post-pandemic was less full of arbitrary, oh, I said the word arbitrary, rules and restrictions upon your liberty to get out on the road in the van and go and be human with other people by um, engaging in the communion of music. So there we are. We're in Brussels rehearsing for the tour. But we have to fly back to Ireland because going from, well, should I mention all of these things? I suppose we should um, because... For whatever um, post-Brexitization, post-Brexit um, pandemic um, stirring of the pot is going on, it's easier to go from Ireland into England. So you start off on the red eye, first date in Manchester. This is a hometown gig for Winterfell, the other band we're touring for. So you would go on the red eye from Dublin at about airport at four in the morning, half four. We um, actually go to this incredible rehearsal room on the outskirts of Manchester where Johnny Marr rehearses. Um, we miss him coming in because we're all sleeping on various cold freezing couches in the three rooms trying to catch up because one of the worst things you can do is start off a tour with no sleep, like no sleep at all. It's okay when you're 23 or 24, but what you end up doing is you end up chasing yourself all of the time with um, drink or drugs or whatever else, trying to up the, up the mood, trying to get the, you know, that you need to get those endorphins or that adrenaline pumping before you play a show so you end up doing all of the things that make you sick and tired in the first place so you start off on day one with no sleep but I guarantee you by day three or four you'll be run down and you'll have some kind of a cold because the way to try and get your dander up as they would have said once upon a time in the 18th century is by doing all the things that make you even more tired however anyway that realization that oh we can play these songs and so what happens then is that basically you have your small van your small um which is and they're nine seaters so that's kind of complicated because you need a driver as well so for two two five band um or two bands with five people in them miss 10 it's too much so you're going to need a sound man sound person whatever you want to call it sound unicorn um and so the fact that Dread Sovereign is three Whole, um, I think really uh, stands to our benefit because people can go, oh, okay, it's only three seats so we can have four of this other band. Um, and then, for example, Chris from Winterfelleth 
um, who has taken it upon himself to organize this whole thing, to map it all out, to cost gas, to hire the van, to um, contact local promoters, to um, basically arrange and assume the mantle of tour manager and also have to play um, a, a new album that they haven't played yet and the responsibility of playing live also has to drive. Um, and as you can see, this is a huge amount of responsibility, which I'm personally kind of against bands driving, as I've known many hairy episodes where people who haven't been um, slept well enough or all of these kind of things are there's a great pressure to drive, for example, the entire length of Poland for a show or the let's say from Detroit to Indianapolis or something like this or. There's huge pressure on you to get from A to B. Um, and people do cut corners, whether it comes to their sleep or their health or many other responsibilities. In this context in the UK, the drives are two to three to four hours. It starts to get a little bit more serious when you're talking about six, seven, eight, ten plus. Or if you're in the USA, 12, 14, 16, 18 hour drives. We've all done them and we've all done them under circumstances and situations that we really shouldn't have. So what were the restrictions like? Well, I must say that in the UK they were literally non-existent for, um, for musicians or for any of us entering any of the venues. There was no checks in airports anywhere. And this is maybe something that might shock some of you if you haven't been doing much traveling or if you've been taking the train and the bus. Um, there are literally no checks in 80-90% of circumstances in airports. Things are just back to normal. It is local stuff where people are checking. It is Ireland where people are checking. Now, there are, there are some quite crazy rules that are in place for Ireland on our Freedom Day, and I'm doing rabbit ears or parenthesis there when I'm talking about that, but I'll get to those. In the UK, literally um, nothing. No checks at all. Um, and... This sort of speaks to the different speed at which different countries are moving through the kind of pandemic rules, how they're going to get used to them, what things are going to stay, what things are not going to stay. And I said in another podcast, I have a feeling that what's going to have to happen is there's going to have to be, on behalf of booking agents and bands, a kind of extra set of questions and inquiry, almost down to who is on the door that night and what is their relationship to how they feel about enforcing these rules. Now, next year, of course, if there's a further digitized track and trace system or something more constrictive, um, I'm not going to quite get into it now, but the idea that your passport or your um, freedom passport or your green passport, whatever, is going to stop at some stage or be um, the, its powers uh, relinquished because the pandemic is, is declared over, I think is a rather naive view. I think they're just going to morph into other areas of life. I mean, I might as well talk about it now, but in Ireland, they're discussing um, just attending a nightclub. You're going to have to have a prepaid um, or pre-booked ticket. So basically, they're handing over your, um, let's say, post-midnight nightlife to um, Ticketmaster or Eventbrite or whatever else, further marginalising, actually, genuinely alternative clubs or alternative um, bars or anywhere that, that doesn't want to tow these very mainstream rules. So what you're doing is you're handing over an awful lot of the nightlife um, to the Weatherspoons Walmart style style of socialising. I'm not sure if I can even describe it in any more negative terms than that, but it's the sort of technical gentrification of the socialising space and the idea that it's going to be easy for you to go out and see a band randomly or do something spontaneous, at least in this country, um, is 
looking pretty difficult. Okay, our Freedom Day. What quite happened when we played in Limerick? Well, as you can imagine, a whole raft of nonsense, arbitrary rules um, implemented by people who haven't really thought about them for more than a minute or two. You put your mask on when you're going from point A to point B, take it off when you're drinking, then they want you to put the mask back on when you're not, so you talk with it on. But you can take it off if you're dancing, but not if you're standing. But if you're drinking, you can take it down, blah, 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 blah. And and people are going around saying, put your mask on, take your mask off, blah, blah, blah. Nonsense. It's just this idea, the same thing as when you get on a plane, keep it on until you sit down and when you're eating food. It's the idea that... The virus, or whatever you want to say, is um, working on a whole different separate set of levels based on whether you're sitting or standing or drinking or eating or dancing. And so I wouldn't have expected any less than this kind of chaos. But for sure, um, there was things were much more strict in Ireland than in the UK. Very much so. And across Europe, as I said, different countries are moving at different speeds in their relationship to how the rules are enforced. Now, of course, those rules will be um, enforced more strictly if fines are in place, which, let's be honest, I think most governments will be rolling out some way of trying to um, fill the coppers next year. But will those fines outweigh the risk of having more people in there with less arbitrary rules? Now, a lot of people don't like the term social apartheid. So to speak, it rankles with people um, and that's one of the reasons why commentators say it. But what you are doing is creating a two-tier social society where those who do not have um, access or have made a different choice with their lives are not going to be able to socialise in the same way. And it's really going to depend on what's happening within your country. Um, Our own country's um, health executive, the um, self-declared, or rather the... um, so shall we say the health official overlords that our government has chosen to hide behind so as they don't have to make any complicated decisions for the last, well, almost two years, um, have decided that they need to keep hold of their powers until next spring, regardless. And of course, are banging the drum for more cases equals more lockdown potentiality. Of course, the idea that what we're dealing with is something that's endemic and we're just going to have to live with Uh, doesn't seem to make any difference. But of course, that's the nature of power, as I said many times before. If you don't understand that the nature of power itself is an aphrodisiac, and once you've handed all of yours over, or all of your freedoms and liberties, they don't all come back in the manner in which you handed them over. That's just not how things work. And if you think otherwise, I think you're being naive. History is on the side of those who recognise that power corrupts, or whatever you want to say. So... Yes, Ireland reopened um, to much, you know, Simon Says Stand Up, Simon Says Sit Down. I wonder where that came from, Simon Says. But the idea that your socialising will have to be done by ticket um, is, of course, it spells something dreadful for where we are as a subculture or all of those kind of things. It's very hard to know how, how does a subculture survive? How do gigs manage to keep on going the same way. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I did say a month ago that I didn't think there would be gigs happening um, until next February. It was a particularly dark, gloomy day, that one, where I thought, no, there's no way they're going to let people back out and have some socialising. But they have. They have to a degree. They haven't done it to the degree that they should or that they should have disbanded all of these, um, you know, uh, officiating boards. But... There is some small movement in the right direction. Anyway, what am I talking about? 
But there was something interesting I was considering, which is the idea that the pressure on bands to tour prior to this meant that um, you had to really judge whether a regional show was worth it. Because this, and this may sound really strange, but in 2002, well, actually, it won't sound strange. It's actually pretty prescient, I think. In 2002, Primordial played with Rod in Christ and Enthroned um, in Cardiff to about 60 people. And last week I played in Cardiff with Winterfelleth and Dread Sovereign to about 60 people. Literally nothing had changed. And of course, you meet people there and go, ah, it'd be great to see you here with Primordial. And I have to go, you know what? We did that 20 years ago and you guys didn't show up then either. Um, There is no, there's no way that bands of a certain age with certain financial expectations can go and play to 50, 60, 70 people. Um, and if that happens, then the night is pretty much deemed something of a failure. Now, on the, under these circumstances, maybe the bands, with all due respect, Winterfellas and Dread Seven Twenty Years On are a little bit smaller, um, but it still has some of the same resonance because I meet regional people like these guys I met in Bournemouth who were like, "Oh, we saw you know Iron Maiden here in eighty, and once upon a time it used to be on the you know the gig trail." And so what happens then is that um, once your city or town goes from being a Friday or Saturday night to a midweek night, slowly but surely it'll drop off till a no day of the week night. And if people don't show up on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and of course we can get into the that harks back to the gentrification aspect of most inner cities, which I think um, aren't. Uh, where people work and live anymore. So therefore, traveling in when you're that bit older to try and go and see a gig um, is all that more difficult than in the olden days. But people would say to me, ah, you know, it's great you're here in Bournemouth. I go, okay, yeah, cool. Um, But the the venue itself takes 100 people, which is a cool self-contained rock venue. If you've been following me on Instagram, you'll see my little... Um, video which shows the entrance and going down into the um, where the gig space is. But 100 people is not enough to make anyone any money. So it's a stopover there for small bands who are never expecting anything financially. Now, why do I keep talking about money? Yeah, of course, I know it's a vulgar subject. But what I'm trying to get at is the fact that um, you always meet people at regional shows who go, oh, why don't, why doesn't the band come here more often? They don't and the reason is because there's only 50 people here. But the catch is, of course, for there potentially to be more people, then you have to keep coming back, which is the lesson you learn from touring America very often, which is you have to keep going back three or four times. But to do that, you need to clear the runway almost completely for a certain part of your life and expect that the first three or four or five tours of America, you don't make anything. And that may still be the case if your band doesn't catch on or people nobody is interested in your music, which is still a thing most people don't really realise. Like, oh, some bands, they just don't grow. They just keep going around doing the same thing. And that's okay. But again, Birmingham, the home the home of heavy metal, had 60 or 70 people. Now, once Promodial played there in 1994, and there was about 20 people. Um, and the thing is that there's only so long as a musician you can keep sort of doing those things. Promodial certainly can't do it and we often meet those people who go oh how come I have to go to London to see Primordial well unfortunately and it isn't, ain't really our fault your scene died um, or at least it became so much smaller that bands couldn't really play there anymore because once it goes below about 150 180 people then there really isn't um, a financial incentive and once you get older and that's what um, there has to be some sort of recompense especially if you've flown into the country. Now, that's one thing, travelling over the border from, let's say, 
Aachen to going to Limburg to Eindhoven, which is only an hour or two or something you can just drive across. But for bands who have to fly into a country, rent a van, rent a backline, all of those kind of things, where do they sleep? They sleep in the Holiday Inn, on the outskirts. Um, this is the reason why there aren't any regional shows, because when bands come, there's only 40, 50 or 60 people. Whatever happened to the scene in Cardiff or Swansea, I know there used to be all these bootleg records of Morbid Angel and Paradise Lost and Nocturnus and Carcass and stuff from back in the early 90s. I do wonder if there was ever really a scene there. Um, so you're left in this weird predicament because I don't really count Manchester as a regional show. This is a big, big city. And, you know, getting 150 to 500 people there is a little bit easier. But what do you do? You have to fill up your tour schedule with a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Now, I wanted to mention this at the front of the um, show, and maybe I'll do a little separate edit because this is so absolutely hilarious. But the show in um, Glasgow. Now, you may have heard me complaining about Scotland, about its very um, quick descent into elements of authoritarianism, their bills being passed, which, you know, make hate speech at the dinner table. Um, a law now, many, many other things, such as their um, SNP party wanting to extend the uh, COVID laws and regulations in perpetuity, it would seem. So they just don't want to give the power that they took back. Now, this is one thing. But the show in, in, show in Glasgow had some rules that I can't really, rules and regulations that I can't really go without mentioning. Um of course, you needed to be vaccinated to enter in the crowd, um, but also requiring a lateral flow, flow test on top of that. Um, but what really took the biscuit for me um, is the biscuit. And I'm talking about the venue Stereo in Glasgow, who say... Finally, we strongly believe that face coverings and vaccinations are the fastest way to get out of the current situation, which is... Interesting then that you ask those who have, um, you know, acquiesced to that and got a vaccination to then also take a lateral flow test, which doesn't really make any sense. But we'll not tolerate any anti-mask or anti-vax rhetoric made by performers or their promoters. Any such events are liable to be cancelled in advance or performances cut if during the show. So much for free speech. I did say, am I able to say the C word and... Um, the crowd said yes, so I said it was Catholicism or communism. Once upon a time, that Catholicism com comment might have got you in more trouble in Glasgow, but not really. But the idea that a venue sends out in advance um, a statement which says you can or cannot talk about this or that on the stage is quite incredible. But I just find the idea incredible that the venue sends you this um, sort of like political statement for when you play there. We believe that... Um, this is the fast way to get out of the current situation. Or maybe they're the fastest way to make the current situation keep rolling and rolling and rolling. Hmm, could be. What I find in reality is that most places which, which share some of these views, they want diversity, but not really diversity of opinion. But it's up to them, I guess. But after all the rhetoric which we read on the way up there in the van... None of it transpired. You just walked in the back door, mask or not, set up your stuff and played your show. Um, there was no discussion of it. The rather tired and bored bar staff didn't really seem to give a shit. So what happened really? Some jobs worth with the political agenda made 
a whole raft of new rules. The idea, I think what makes me, um, you know, how unpunk rock is this really? The idea that a whole section of society that views its, well, let's not say a whole, a section of society that would have viewed itself perhaps as liberal is now taking the side of big pharma. And if you were, say, have a different opinion, not saying that I particularly do, but the implication being that any deviation from the um, mainstream narrative marks you out as an anti-vaxxer or something else just seems a little bit odd when it comes to um, venues that would purport to being open-minded, at least. But, hey, it's your venue. But I just find the rhetoric rankles with me. The idea that you must conform to this opinion and you must not say anything about it from the stage. I just thought the whole thing was too funny not to mention. And it did give me a wry smile on the way up. And then as it transpired that none of these rules made any difference anyway. The idea that this is what you must do and enforce and send out this rather aggressive um, message to anybody playing there. Well, listen, you can type what you want. I don't know. Kind of funny, kind of strange. Don't know what's happening in Scotland. It's all gone a bit weird. But let's say this. The more rules and restrictions you put in place, the quicker you get out of it. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. You don't get to make more and more arbitrary rules and restrictions and kowtow to state and pharma, and then they give you the freedom pass out of it. Not the way things work. What you just do, in my opinion, is encourage a more authoritarian society, a more papers-please society, a more polarized society, one where certain sections of society look down upon other sections of society, and what you do is so create, so and create division, all at the behest of state, tech, and pharma. And that's kind of my opinion on the situation. But if you've been deranged by the whole situation and think that anybody who disagrees with those political values is somebody you don't want in your club, well then, I think it's a pretty sad and reductionist way of thinking. I just thought that was worth a little dig, a little complaint. Not really a complaint, is it? Just more of a little a little bitchy moan. And then you get in your van and you drive down and you're back in the UK and in fact you're heading towards Wales where none of the same rules apply. It surely makes a mockery of the kind of ideology that's behind thinking like this unless you live on an island fortress such as Australia or New Zealand that you can just literally shut down your entire country to pursue these rather ridiculous not um, percent ideologies which are reductive in their um, outlook and reductive in their thinking and also just scientifically impossible. Once something is endemic, then you don't get to go to naught percent or you just have to learn how to live with it. So was it all worth it? Of course it was. First tour back in 21 months. Um, good to get back in the van, as Mr. Rollins would have said. Good to be around musicians, to be back playing, to going to be able to go to these regional places and make Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday maybe a little bit more interesting for the 40, 50 or 60 or even 90 people who show up. But what it did is it gave it gave me, it gave me everybody else a little, a little microcosm of some of the problems that we're going to face as we move ahead in the next year or two. As I said, different venues um, with wholly different interpretations of the rules, different um, versions of uh, restrictions, Who's on the door that night? Who's not on the door? Are they going to be fined? Is there this? Is there that? 
And certainly the end of this week-long tour was in Limerick, where the um, the rules sort of kicked into a kind of sense of, well, the sense of nonsense. As I keep telling people, you're trying to make sense of nonsense. That's why it doesn't make sense, because it was stand up here, sit down there, go here, go there, etc., etc., but there is certainly something taking place which is which will be in some countries a form of technical gentrification. That the only way you will be able to know if you can get around that is by forming personal bonds and relationships with uh, venues that understand the complexities of the situation and they understand. And I suppose this is what's going to happen. It's going to be almost like going back to the early 80s whereby you cross someone off your list and went, no, that venue is too much trouble to play there etc. Or, no, their response to all of this is far too draconian, far too authoritarian, far too woke, as the case may be. Um, Let's just cross that off our list. And that may be fine for those places. They can accept a different kind of client, a different kind of band, a different kind of whatever. That's up to them, I guess. How next year turns out remains to be seen. I think my um, negative, pessimistic view of where we might be from two months ago, I can say I'm not too big enough or, you know, too... I don't have um, that much of an ego that I can't admit that I overshot the mark with my pessimism or negativity. And we can only see what happens from here. But that's just a small rambling, i got to stop using that word, overview of a week um, spent back in the van. Next week's podcast is going to be a bit more about um, society, a bit about culture, a bit more about politics, about, as I briefly mentioned there, things like, you know, um, does this, let's call it Freedom Green Pass, get revoked once the threat is extinguished? Or are we going to keep it? Is it going to morph into other things? Um, Social currency, all that kind of stuff, all the kind of nice gritty stuff we were talking about before but for now this is Agitators Anonymous episode squiddly diddly who knows what it is it's 80 and it's just the return to small tour life right I'm Al Navarro this is Agitators Anonymous over and out for another episode planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quinn's Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.